Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. All right, guys. So I'm kind of getting back in the groove here. I got another great episode for y'all. This is with a new guest, and it's a really good episode. Um, I've had a few fish nerds on, but I've been meaning to have this guest on for a while. Uh, His name is Lochran Cabe, and uh, he is currently in college, um, not studying biology, which came as a big surprise to me. He is someone that really talks with the, uh, the knowledge of a, you know, an actual biologist. Uh, but he is just a very dedicated naturalist. Um, and he is very interested in freshwater ecology. He spends a lot of time doing underwater photography, uh, showcasing the fish diversity of these beautiful streams in the Appalachians. And, uh, we have a really great talk about these fish and how we need to conserve them and all the different issues they face and how we can use ecotourism to to help some of these different fish communities. And uh, all around, it was a great talk. Uh, these are the kind of conversations I really like to have, just really um, just really getting, you know, in the weeds about, um, the, you know, biodiversity and conservation and uh, just a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. Um, so, yeah, I will leave it at that. And now I bring you Lachlan Cabe. But yeah, so you, you do herps too, right? Yep. Um, I definitely, as a as a kid, was always especially um, enamored with reptiles and amphibians. Yep. Uh, but I started with birds as well. Um, like I, the story goes that I learned to read out of uh, Sibley guides to to eastern birds. Oh, don't see. know don't know how true <clears throat> that is. But I definitely noticed them early um, and then quickly moved to to start to look at everything else as well. But I have really settled on, on freshwater fish as a, as a focus. You happen to live in a great area for that. Right? This is true. Yeah, this is true. I do not. I'm absolutely <laughs> a, a product of my context. I grew up, I'm still, you know, I'm, I am in college now. You can probably see him in a dorm room, but I grew up and still technically live in the same house in the Shenandoah Valley, in okay. Virginia, um, Western Shenandoah Valley, foothills of the Alleghenies. Uh, but I've spent a lot of time, up and down the Blue Ridge, all all through that area. It's a, a spectacular area with spectacular biodiversity and a place that I miss when I'm not there. Yeah. So you said you, st- for, for, yeah. you started with no, birds. No. Birds was your first interest. For most people, it's like the opposite. People start yeah. with like birds and then get into birds and then fish. Well, I'm as I'm a product of my context, I'm also a product of, of the people who raised me. Um, both my parents are extremely... Um, outdoors noticing people just really ecologically minded people uh both are professors my father is a biologist teaches genetics and ornithology um, among other things my mother is uh, an art professor uh, teaches mixed media and printmaking largely right um but both spent all my childhood going you know this is what this is this is what that is it was just part right. of part of the experience um but it quickly became you know a personal interest as well um, you know, would I remember spending time every morning before getting driven to school, especially in the winter, I would look out the window at the bird feeder. I remember, you know, slowly um, even, you know, seeing stuff that my parents hadn't noticed. I remember seeing a, a Lincoln sparrow, which was really, really uncommon, but this must have been in second grade. And I noticed that it was different than a song sparrow. And I remember that as like a formative moment when I realized that I could, you know, really start to notice the, the minutiae of the differences. Right. I find myself uh, jealous of people that got to grow up 
they got to grow up in an ecology household with like parents that were interested in ecology or in your case, you said your father is an ornithologist. That's, uh, among other things, um, yeah. he's largely a geneticist, okay, population yeah. geneticist. So it, it, but his, his research has, has meant, um, he's done a lot of work with redback salamanders, but his, his PhD work was all with starlings, so with birds. Sure. Um, and, and now he mostly works with crayfish. Gotcha. Uh, so he's been in a lot of places. General, pretty general generalist too, with his interest. Yeah. yeah. No, going, going outside was always... Um, just, just look at everything around you. Here's this. Here's why it's there. Um, just starting, starting to get that kind of systems understanding. It's right. so it makes it such a joy to be outside. Yeah. Um, but I think within within that generalization, it gave me the room to start to think about what groups were under underloved and, and underappreciated, and kind of discover some things for myself. Because the one thing that really I think that I never noticed as much as a kid was fish. You know, I had this context and I had um, just, you know, was absolutely fortunate to grow up in a house where these things were pointed out to me. But the, I don't think I think the one thing that wasn't pointed out to me as much just because they're really hard to point out is freshwater fish. Yeah. Um, no one in my family fished, um, which is often the only way people have to interact with these things. Uh, and so in, in high school, especially, I started to started to notice them and started to seek them out. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead and, uh, I guess more formally start, you can go ahead and just introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah. So I am Lock and Cave to typically go by Lock. I am 19 years old. I'm currently a student at Oberlin college in Ohio, uh, but I'm from Western Virginia. Uh, I am not uh, a professional biologist, nor am I a, a professional anything yet. Uh, but my interest lies really, really heavily in conservation um, and general uh, matters relating to biodiversity. And my principal interest um, in recent years really has been on freshwater fish, especially the underappreciated species that are non-sport fish. So all of the, the minnows and darters and shiners and chub, and all of these things that are typically not noticed even by the avid outdoorsman. Uh, I'm also a photographer, uh, which is, I guess, how I ended up here. I found my way into the the wildlife Instagram community um, pretty early in, in middle school or so and slowly got to experience that community. Um, and that has, has brought me so many wonderful connections. Uh, same actually, here, including this same here. Yeah. yeah, no, it's it's worth talking about. It's really, really worth talking about. I think that I am an anomaly in that I get to say that social media has had a legitimately positive influence on my life, especially for my generation and, and my specific place within my generation. I definitely went through middle and high school seeing it as as an evil to some extent and as something that's that's not good for a lot of people. And I absolutely think that it is not good in so many ways. It has absolutely taken up countless hours of my life that I can never get back. <laughs> but at the same time, um, when it came to getting into stuff like this, it was just absolutely uh, pivotal for me. I've started to act like when I first like posted an image on Instagram, I had no ideas, no idea what the implications of that were. Um, but it eventually led me to think harder about photography um, and image-based communication as a form of media and as a form of activism. Um, it made me think harder about how I was thinking about that process and how I was thinking about these species. It made me, it, I mean, it taught me so much, so much of what I think I, I now know about these species and about this kind of ecology came from 
you know, just all of these posts from all of these people and these long conversations with people that I've still never met in my life um, who were interested in these same things. Yeah. I've had a similar experience, you know, um, the, the community aspect was the primary reason I really loved social media, being able to connect with other naturalists, um, especially, you know, we're, we're kind of like, uh, well, it's, it's hard to tell now a lot more people are becoming interested in natural history and ecology, but we're still a very small group, generally speaking. Yeah. Like growing up and stuff, like, you know, we were all like the weird kid that liked herps or whatever. And had no friends to talk about it and <laughs> to, to learn from and to have a community of people. And I discovered the community very early on and it's been so valuable for my life. Uh, but then you're talking about the, the outreach potential, you know, getting people connected to these ecosystems and these species. It's really incredible. And uh, yeah, like it, I wish I could just tune out of social media completely but I, I just can't at this point because it oh, yeah. have oh, yeah. implications on your mental health. Even if you're only looking, you're primarily sticking to wildlife or natural history based social media, like staring at your phone for hours on end, I don't think is good for you. You know? No, no. Even but, just physically. Yeah. Um, it's just, um, yeah. so I, I'm, I try to be more disciplined now and I try to be more of a producer than a consumer. <laughs> uh, I don't know if you experienced yeah. that. It's, it's hard, but especially if you follow a bunch of cool naturalists like yourself. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's true. And I, I feel the exact same way. It's a, it's a paradox of it. Cause it really did um, kind of hook me into that world, but I, I just cannot bear to keep. Now you would still be here right now studying biology, regardless because of the household you grew up in. Like you were destined to be a biologist. It seems you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not actually studying biology. Um, no, I'm not sure what I'm studying yet. Okay. I'm, I've become very, very interested, ironically, actually, in media and in okay. communications and film. Um, after engaging with it because of social media, so it's funny that that this would get brought up. Uh, I'm very much, you know, I'm a sophomore. I'm very much in, in flux with what I'm studying. I'm right. also a musician. I've put a lot of time into that. Um, it's been a lot of time trying to figure out where that fits academically. Um, but Instagram and that community has made me think a lot about the, about the benefits of having people out here who not only understand what needs to be done and understand, um, basic ecology and conservation, but can also talk about that in ways that are accessible and effective and communicative to the rest of the world. Uh, it's this constant gap people talk about within science communication with just right. this lack of um, clear, uh, uh, what's the word? Just It's just this gap yeah. uh, between the knowledge and, and the knowledge about what needs to be done on a much less advanced, um, you know, degree-wise level. And I think another piece of this is, is education. Uh, maybe I'll end up somewhere in education. I absolutely, I think that a lot of our problems would be solved conservation-wise if natural history education was required on a local level within every inst institute of education. Right. I think right. if every elementary school had just a little piece of the curriculum was we're gonna go outside and you're gonna learn five trees that live where you live and five birds that live where you live. And you know we're gonna take a day and go down to the local creek and here's what lives there. Just showing people means so much and it makes such a difference for how they perceive those things later in life. And then imagine if, you know, these kids go to college and their college is somewhere else and their college 
just has that as one required, you know, little credit. Um, it just makes such a difference on people. I've had the really wonderful opportunity as a student here at Oberlin to teach through our experimental college program, which means that students get to teach for credit courses on things they're passionate about and you apply to apply to teach and you get approved or not. And I got approved to teach a fish ecology course to uh, about 13 of my peers. And we would, um, I prepared lectures, but we would also go down to the tiny little trickle of a stream on campus. And we surveyed it, found 13 plus species of native freshwater fish that, you know, most of these people came in not even realizing there was a creek on campus or not even realizing that's not true, but not even realizing that it was big enough to hold fish. Right. Um, and came out of it with just understanding that it's a piece of this landscape because you wouldn't <clears throat> see it otherwise. You bring up a very uh, important point um, about how, you know, a lot of people think they have to have a biology degree to do a lot of really valuable conservation work. And that's just not the case anymore. No, absolutely um, not. There's plenty of people with biology degrees, with wildlife ecology degrees that, you know, may maybe they do work in natural resources. Um, but, you know, a, a lot of times they're not having a, a large impact. You know, they're just kind of going with the flow. There's so many passionate naturalists that are much better suited to, to do a lot of good in the realm of conservation and ecology. And while maybe you don't ever get an ecology background, you know, at school, you're still already probably a better ecologist than like some, some number of people that have the degree. And, uh, I think that's really important because a lot of people get discouraged because they think they have to have a, an ecology background, like formally to, to do this sort of stuff, but that's just not the case at all. <laughs> no. And I think it's this concept, the, the concept of natural history as a subject has certainly been relegated to this land of, of biology. And while they are certainly the same thing, they're also not the same thing. Right. And I think that it has gotten a little bit to the point where, you know, somebody who knows the birds in the town that they live in is assumed to like have a biology degree or to, or to be on that track to some degree. But there was a time, and I, I really don't mean to be one of those people that's like, oh, it was all better back in the day before the world was corrupted and <laughs> TikTok. Like, I'm, I really don't believe that. I'm very much uh, not always an optimist, perhaps, but an optimist in the way we communicate and the way we see the right. world. And I think that we are still just as engaged with our world as as we used to be just in different channels. But I think one of the channels that we lost is that connection to local ecology. Um, because basic natural history. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it doesn't even have to be, you don't have to know the scientific names of things around you. And you don't have to, it's as simple as noticing that there are three different types of trees in your front yard. And it's not on anyone for not noticing that. It's on us in general for not, you know, teaching children that and working that into just a piece of life. You know, you go to school, you learn basic, basics, excuse me, basic social skills, you learn basic math, um, you learn vocabulary. And I think part of that vocabulary should be how to talk about the natural world, because the only way we do that right now is in terms of ecology and biology. Yeah. Um, and this is, you know, again, the viewpoint of a 19 year old who has been very fortunate to have grown up in a world with that vocabulary. And I get that it's right certainly more difficult. It's more difficult for different demographics. There is such a huge divide between um, access to that sort of thing for low income right. uh, group, marginalized groups and groups within uh, urban areas and whatnot. 
but it's still something that we could work toward. And for, for a lot of kids, you know, uh, a biology class is just so uninteresting, but a lot of those kids in that class would be completely fascinated by some, some stuff about the local birds and herbs and just more general natural history stuff, uh, versus learning about cells and that sort of, you know, the kind of the, the really boring, in my view, boring parts of biology. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, my, my dad would disagree. So, um, I, you know, it's true. Um, I think that, I think that all that's important. I think that we need people with biology degrees. We need scientists, we need academics, we need people to know all of those things, but they aren't the only people who get to know those things. Right. And in the end, I'm kind of of the mind that the people who get biology degrees will go off to know what needs to be done for the world and they will, you know, make a positive impact. I think a lot, I think very pragmatically about a lot of this. Uh, For me, it does come down to, you know, policy takes people will have on conservation policy, what they'll say in a local election that has to do with land usage or something like that. Um, And, you know, a biologist, even if they don't have a solid background in and are a fantastic local ecologist, we'll still kind of get the gist of what needs to be done conservationally. And, you know, there's always going to be disagreement. But I like to think that, but I think that it's the other people, it's the people doing every other job in the world, the people who are doing um, humanities jobs and doing, um, you know, labor jobs and any other type of job. I'm I'm tired and not, not thinking okay. of all the words I'm trying to come up with. But all of these other people who could also have that say because i think we all get that say because we all live in an ecological context but we don't think we do because we've kind of taken that concept out of the popular um mind and put it into this this degree defined box yeah so so you're pretty much dead set on on pursuing media um uh, and your and your path as a conservation professional um, I'm not dead set on anything. Um, if, if anyone close to me right now is, is going to listen to this, they'll be uh, chuckling crazily at this, this little statement because yeah. I'm about as indecisive as anyone could be right now. Um, right. especially for the, this late, you know, a year and a half into college, but I'm super interested in it. I'm also, of course, still really interested in biology and ecology and the really, you know, scientific aspects of that. But I do think that there is such a big gap in the humanities. And so many schools are starting to offer programs in environmental humanities, environmental studies departments that are more holistic. I have mixed thoughts on all of that <laughs> that I won't get into because you probably didn't start this expecting a, a deep uh, a debate on, on collegiate academic philosophy. But good. there is so much room for people who are passionate about fixing these problems through all of these other routes because we need everyone and i don't think yeah i'm just going in circles at this point but it's all good i'm not dead set on anything but i am dead set on the need for people in every field that have a strong eye towards ecology and conservation and honestly that's just about it but I think that getting that strong, and sorry for the background noise. I it's all good. I'm in the college um, dorm. But... So let's talk about your Instagram. It's incredible. Yeah. 
you're an incredible underwater photographer and photographer in general and uh yeah yeah really get a sense for the the ecosystems that that you spend time in through that and uh i feel like people really appreciate Mm -hmm. your stuff you know and how long have you been pursuing the the instagram stuff yeah it's it's interesting and then pursuing is an interesting word because i never thought about it like that Same. i think i got Instagram. i just kind of dripped it, drip it in yeah no it's well it's interesting to think about how you think about it because i think i have such a different relationship to it than a lot of people have to their personal social medias because i do very much see it as my personal social media presence like this is just right. my presence um but I think I downloaded it in seventh or eighth grade, later than most of my peers. Um, I think for the sake of organizing some sort of political protest, can't, don't know if I can remember exactly what it was, but it was just a communication platform at that point. Um, and I think, oh, there's no way I can scroll all the way down, but there's, I think the first post was a picture of a fishing spider on my pond and I put a really stupid filter on it. Um, and then people liked it and then I went to school the next day and you know I'm in middle school and somebody says oh that was a really cool picture what kind of spider was that or that's crazy where'd you see that spider this photo looks really cool you made it look really big I think I remember that being something somebody said and so I just started to take pictures of the things that I always just took as a given that I was interested in because I realized it was this most simple way ever to communicate that to other people And I just hadn't had that channel. Even now when I post, you know, it's a little bit for all the other, um, you know, wildlife photography people out there. But a lot of the reason I want to post that is for the people around me who are my peers in all these other contexts to see how I see things. Right. um, And to see what I think is so important about living in the world. Um, So I slowly took more and more pictures and I started to realize that you know, people like them more, the better the pictures are. Um, Funny that that would be a realization, but it was. And I found an old camera that my mom had used for something in the back of a cabinet, um, dusted it off. It was a Nikon D60, uh, real real old beginner level DSLR, but I used it for years. Um, Great introductory camera, uh, just a kit lens. And I started taking it outside and I probably only shot with automatic settings for like two years, but they slowly getting better and slowly develop more of an eye for composition. And then, so that's how, that's where my interest in photography comes from. It was very much a functional, how do I take the best picture possible of these things? Um, And now I have become very interested in photography and visual depiction as a method and as a a study in itself, but it very much arose as how can I show people what I see? Right. Um, that's where I'm at. I've always used yeah. camera just as a as a way to display biodiversity. Yeah. I've never got I've never been I've never like identified heavily as like a photographer. I just a, ca- a camera's like a tool. So my yeah. experience is a little bit different perhaps, but um Yeah. I, I appreciate I'm I'm still stuff. figuring out my relationship to it. Um I really love uh what do I love about it? I love I love the display portion of it. I love the fact that you can that we have the ability to realistically and honestly display something that you saw through your eyes to somebody else. I think that that is just a wonderful thing. Um, I also love, you know, the more 
compositional aspect of it. I love visual aesthetics. I love graphic design. I love interior design. I love all these things. So I love applying that to it as well. And that kind of just um, goes hand in hand and I don't really separate them very often. I love conceptual arts and, you know, 4D media arts. I've gotten to do stuff like this uh, here at college. Uh, I recently, I'm currently in a music and technology class and I, for a recent project, um, what did I do? I made a piece about noise pollution where I had taken uh, recorded sounds of local grasshoppers and kind of mixed them with with airplanes and motorcycles and made this whole ambient soundscape, um, which to me was filling some of the same role that my photography does. I was, this is how I hear the world. I want to show that to other people. Um, right. And I hear it in terms of noise pollution and ecological drowning out of all these species that require on that require that sonic space to be um, uninhibited. Right. Man, that class has made me talk like a nerd, though. <laughs> Funny. Can't tell. Uh, with your um, when you're sharing biodiversity, um, do you do you talk a lot about conservation, and or do you? rely more on just inspiring people with your photography and writing about the natural history or do you do both? That's a really good question. It depends on who I'm talking to. It depends on their starting point and it really depends on their age. Uh, I think that somebody who already is interested in wildlife and in what's around them, you know, should start to hear about conservation issues and what the most pressing issues are. Um, but for somebody who has, you know, never been comfortable outside, and there are lots of those people who have simply never felt comfortable outside through no fault of their own whatsoever. Um, I, I don't ever start with that. It's yeah. This is a this is a sycamore tree. You can <laughs> you can tell that because the leaves are pointed like this and it has this kind of bark. Um, and you just you just go from there. Uh, I have the privilege to get to teach at a natural history summer camp. Um, oh, for awesome. a number of age groups awesome. between generally 11 year olds to about 18 year olds. And so for the 18 year olds, like, yeah, they've been coming to this camp for a few years. They know what um, they know what a bluehead shove is. They know what these species are in this very specific place. Really wonderful institution. As a side note, uh, it's called Nature Camp Incorporated. It was named okay. back in the 50s. It's a very creative name then. Um, <laughs> but it's in, in Western Virginia in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And we just we take kids and we say, here's what's right around you. We're gonna go out and we're gonna learn to identify trees and birds and, and rocks and snakes right here. Right. Um, and so for the older kids that does become, here are the issues they're facing. Uh, but for the youngest kids, they just, they need to know what's out there. They need to know what's in their backyard. And if they continue to want to learn that, then they will inevitably come on conservation because it doesn't take long with any species to, you know, figure out something terrible that's happened that's affected them or some terrible issue that's related to their their niche in the ecosystem. I always wonder what it's like for people that have no no basic understanding of ecology or the native species in their area when they hear about conservation issues. I mean, some people just, you know, by default will support any kind of conservation, you know, um, thing. But <clears throat> for people that... that that hear this and they, but they have no understanding and no knowledge of it. I often wonder if that's, um, if that's the issue for a lot of people is just no understanding of native species at all. And why, why care about this random stuff, you know? So sticking with no, the basics, basics first seems really valuable. 
No, I think it absolutely is. And I think that I didn't realize for a long time how lucky I was to have been given that um, in my upbringing and that so many people are not. And that comfort in an outdoor space is not a given for people. Um, that was was alien to me as a child because I was so, so comfortable. Um, but there are plenty of people who just, you know, a forest is not a safe place for them. And this is, you know, again, there so much of this comes down to to different communities and levels of marginalization and income and, you know, how much time um, they have and all of these different things. So many social factors at play. But basically, there are always going to be people who do not have that basic comfort. And it really is just it's one step at a time, because I think that there is an assumption, perhaps on on behalf of biologists and conservationists that a people will care about this animal or b people have been outside and know what a pine tree is but they don't and we shouldn't expect that we should work it into our systems of consideration that you know people need to be shown these things and it is the most rewarding thing ever to get to do that for people oh it's, to it's get amazing. to take people outside no it's just so wonderful getting to teach this yeah. class on this campus was one of the most fun things i have ever gotten to do I got to meet every Sunday at 1 p.m. and take out a bunch of my peers, people, freshmen through through seniors. Um, and we'd go down to the creek. I remember we found a water snake one day and people got to hold a snake for the first time. And, you know, we were catching crayfish and all of these things in this tiny little agricultural stream in northern Ohio. Um, and it was so eye-opening for people. But, you know, some people that I've I've spoken to are coming to this with a baseline that they haven't even um ever considered the fact that that stream is flowing downstream into lake erie like there's this context that i think people who were brought up outdoors have that no one else is expected to have and there's no reason that they should be um and so it's such such a good thing to know when we're educating right because it can be i'm i'm realizing what my main point is as i'm talking here but oh, yes. so oh, so easy to forget that there can be no baseline and that's okay and that's part of why it becomes such a thing that people think they need to have a degree or something for right um because they'll show up to a an event or they'll hear somebody talking and they just don't have any baseline and to conservation to a lot of people is um you know saving rhinos in africa yeah it's nothing yeah. to do with the critters in their own backyard you know and that's another challenge we yeah, have that's a really good point yeah as conservationists and i always say this the best way to make a big difference is to learn about your local ecosystems first yeah yeah um, no i i absolutely agree yeah. um and the nice thing is if people have just one thing that they really care about in their local ecosystem that goes for everything right. um and my focus is, you know, on freshwater fish because they are so underfunded, underappreciated, underconserved, because no one can see them. Uh, and I think that the visibility is such an under-talked about thing. And it is talked about in the sense of, of charismatic megafauna, like what you were just saying, like a rhino is going to get a lot of international funding. That's a big, impressive, cool species that everyone can name. Same which is great, by the way. It's, which is, it's yeah, no, which is absolutely we, fantastic. We still have pleistocene type megafauna still existing yeah. today we should cherish them and conserve them but um it's just yeah it's just a, a broader point that you know those those species are usually 
doing pretty like they're well taken care of. They're well funded. Yeah. But we're yeah, absolutely biodiv the biodiversity crisis is ever present right here where we live in North yep. America. Yep. And no, that disconnect is so, so apparent to me. The more I the more I get to teach and the more I get to to exist in the world. Because even, you know, even in America, what do we think about? The Endangered Species Act was written to counteract the loss of bald eagles and gray wolves. Alligators. And what were the other ones? American yeah, alligators. alligators these, these big, um, really apparent species. And then there's this, you know, crazy quote. Um, I can't remember the exact wording. It was during the Teleco Dam discussions in the Supreme Court and in Congress when they discovered this, the snail darter, when David Etnier discovered this fish, this tiny brown two inch long fish in a creek in Tennessee that was about to get inundated by a dam built by the TVA. And he said, hey guys, I found this fish. It's gonna go extinct if you put this dam here. And it halted this giant, um, this giant project under the Endangered Species Act. And all these lawmakers that were around when the, the act was passed were like, you know, this isn't why we passed it. We don't care. I'm sure it's a lovely fish, but we passed this for the eagle and the, the wolf and right. all these these species that people see and will miss. Right. Um, and it's crazy how how willing they were to admit that, at least to me now. <clears throat> but yeah. that's what we're working with. We're working how, with the invisible species. How do we how do we sell that to the public to care about that that snail darter? It's a hard sell, you know. How, how do we get okay, people? How do you approve um, people to care? To me, like go, going from the ecosystem perspective is the best shot at getting people to care yeah, about yeah. the more obscure species. Um, giving people the, the the big picture of, you know, if this if you impact this species, it's 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 impacting this entire ecosystem. Yeah. But trying to get people inspired to care about conserving like a species like that is extremely difficult yeah no it it absolutely is um man where do i fall on that i think i'm unconventional in that regard i think that i think the ecosystem approach is a really effective way especially when you're working with policymakers and people who are financially motivated um, and people who will never actually go outside to deal with the species Right. But I find myself more often working not with policymakers and not with the people in charge, but with people who will one day be voters and will one day right. maybe they will be a policymaker. And for me, the most honest way to do it is to just try and make people care about things for the same reason I care, because then I can get animated and excited and just have a blast showing them these things. And that is what has felt effective to me. So in the case of the snail darter, it is small and brown, but it's a beautiful fish. It's a really, really... Um, graceful looking little fish that rests on the bottom with this beautiful kind of zigzagged greenish sheen um, and chevron pattern down the side. You photographed um, it? I have not. I have never gotten to see one. I've oh, been to your, the Hawassi River where they were transplanted to. Oh, also that dam did eventually get built. Uh, it uh, didn't. I figured. Didn't <laughs> I figured. Yeah. Um, no, no, it was not going to. Congress was not going to do. I think Jimmy Carter personally signed it in the end. Um, but dams man those damn dams yeah, yeah there, there's a whole whole damn those series of, of tangents to go on must, there you must hate um, dams being a fish guy <laughs> yeah yeah no i i'm not i'm i'm a fan of those like two dams in west virginia they're keeping variegate darters from inundating the candy darters 
<laughs> that just happened to to save this the species, but that's a rare case. Um, hey, what was I saying? Yeah, so when I talk about freshwater fish, one of the things I highlight rather shamelessly is aesthetic value, because oh, I'm okay. I'm a very aesthetically interested person. I think that things are beautiful, and I think that they are all extraordinarily beautiful. I think that some are the, prettier than others. I'm looking at them right now. Yeah, well, some are convention, conventionally prettier than others. But blows I think my mind that's it blows my mind that some of these fish exist here. Yeah. <laughs> in these no, shrinks. me too. And so that's that's what I lead with. I say, your backyard creek is a small muddy creek downstream of cow pastures. You probably don't even like to get in it. But somewhere in there, there is a fish that is neon yellow and red with white and black highlights. Uh, looks like if you took the German flag and mixed it up a little bit and upped the saturation as far as it could possibly go, looks like something off a coral reef. Yeah. Um, and, you know, people are just mind blown. And then you go down to that creek and you catch it out of it. It's yeah, candy, there, there's candy darter. It's incredible. Fantastic example. Candy darters are, that's a reason they're probably one of the more recognized small freshwater fish in Virginia because they are just stupid looking. They're electric blue with, you know, crimson, orange and white yeah. highlights. They look like, they look like an abstract painting got given fins and they're just beautiful. When you first started getting into the, to the fish photography, it must have been an incredible experience. The first nice portrait you got of a darter must have been. Oh yeah, like you were hooked right there. No, no, it. I see that man, happening. The first, to me if I had more access. The water photos I took were so bad too; they sucked. Um, I didn't know what white balance was, and so I didn't know that I couldn't understand why all the photos were so warm toned and there were no colors, and yeah. like it, you know, it was only upwards from there. We'll have, to talk place, about how you, we'll have to talk about how you shoot these darters at some point, but you can finish. Yeah, no, I'm happy you. to because it's it's not much to say because I, I use a very minimalist rig. You know, I, I say that it's mostly just because I don't have the budget for anything more, but um, I've learned to work with what limitations I have, uh, which has been something that Instagram has helped me do so drastically. So many of these, the wildlife community is already small on Instagram. It's a small community. With some subsets of it being, you know, a little bit bigger. The bird community is huge. There's yeah. there's a lot of, of bird folks on there. Herps and, are growing, but the fish. Yeah, and the, yeah ang fish, fish angling community. But there's a fish community as in people that are interested in fish diversity is small, it seems like. Yes, it is absolutely tiny. I, I know so many of these people now. There's a big but distinction between y'all and anglers. <laughs> yes, no, it's, it's interesting because I work with a lot of anglers. Um, I work with the Native Fish Coalition as a board member in both Ohio and Virginia, which is mostly anglers. Um, really great people who are really passionate about conservation and want to uh, to help out our fish and help out our rivers. But there is certainly such a disconnect in experience um, there. But yeah, no. So the non-sport fish community on Instagram, just so many lovely people and fantastic photographers Incredible. that I could just DM, that I could just message and be like, hey, how how on earth did you do this? Zimmerman. And Isaac Sabo. Isaac, and then there's a dude named Zimmerman. Andrew Zimmerman, Zimmerman. Andrew Zimmerman, Incredible. Isaac Sabo. Who are the other uh, big wits? Um, David, and I can never pronounce his last name. And I feel so bad about that. But the main photographer for Freshwaters Illustrated. Yeah. Um, fantastic. Uh, man, there are others. <clears throat> Todd Pusser isn't on Instagram, but I was influenced a lot by his work. Uh, recently, Anton Sorokin has gotten okay. into some really cool underwater work. But these people, 
could truly just comment, you know, what, how did you, how'd you do this? This doesn't look possible. And Isaac would be like, well, I did this and this and this and this and this, and you might be interested in this piece of gear. And here, let me do this bit of research for you. Just such lovely people. Um, it's interesting because to there are so few of us. Right. It's interesting to reflect on um, people that influenced your own interest in ecology and photography, right? So I, I yeah. know that's happened to me. There's like two or three people that had such a large influence on what I'm interested in and, and what I pursue, you know, with photography or uh, just species. Like I got into plants because of this one guy I met and now I spend a lot of my time looking for rare plants. That's just from following a random person on Instagram and then they become a mentor and then they actually help me in my career. It's crazy. Oh, and that's that's kind of, I think that's how I got so into to Chub and Chub Mounds. Okay. Um, so for, for people oh, listening, um, you know, my favorite thing to talk to in the end um, about fish is Chub and associate Chub Mound species. And you're probably thinking, what, what on earth does that mean? Um, all across the Southeast, there are these minnows. They're, they're large minnows, but they are technically in the minnow family called Chub. Uh, and each spring, the males will spend a week or two building these giant piles of stones. Uh, so the, these fish, you know, maybe the length of your hand, a bit longer, they have really big mouths and they go around and they pick up pebbles and they put them on a pile. And sometimes these piles are two feet tall and, and three or four feet wide, just thousands and thousands of pebbles in a stream. And each spring they do this again. The same fish just does this every spring. And the reason for that is their eggs need to be well oxygenated. They need clean water flowing through and they can't have silt and they can't have you know plants growing. So they make that space for themselves. They don't, they don't leave it to chance. They build their own piece of stream bed. And it's fantastic for their eggs, but it's also fantastic for all these other fish's eggs that have realized that they can just, you know, spawn on the chub's nest too. So there are all these species that have evolved alongside the chub. And for whatever reason, they've also all evolved to be fantastically colorful. Um, and so what, what it ends up being is there's hundreds of fish swarming this pile of strangely looking clean rocks with a chub in the middle, all laying eggs, a lot of them eating the eggs too. And then other species come to eat the eggs and eat the other fish. And it's this beautiful flurry of, of ecology um, where you can see, you know, all these different instances of symbiosis happening in real time, right in front of your face. Um, and these just absolutely spectacular fish. Uh, mountain red belly dace are my favorite of the species found right where I am in West, Western Virginia. Uh, this is the, the bright red and yellow one. Little fish, um, bright yellow and red. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. So what there's I'm multiple right there's now. multiple species of chubs, right? Yes, yes, quite a number. And interestingly, the plural is chub. Chub. Okay, I, I got you. I got you. Um, well, I'm I'm ex you know mess it up all the time as well. It's not intuitive, but. <clears throat> yeah, there are a number of them. So there's bluehead chub are a big one, then you got river chub and red tail chub and, and horny head chub um in various can, places. Uh, uh, people are people chub. are saying bluehead mm -hmm. chub is cool. Bluehead chub looks cool. Yeah, really, and they really do have a powder blue head in depending on the part of their range. Can't see it. I've got a lot of people telling me that that's a lot of species in one, that they're about to get split. Okay. Yeah. Um, makes sense and that's the other thing about freshwater fish is they're so understudied and there are so many more species than we think there are oh for sure like it yeah the, the biogeography of rivers and streams yes is, that's yeah. what happens
and I could I could talk about that forever too. I I always bore my my classes with that just a little bit as I just <laughs> denote an hour where I'm gonna talk about how cool it is that you can drive five minutes from one stream and it's in a different drainage and every fish is different. Do you want to talk about the, the ecology or, or broadly or in the stream ecology of these areas where you spend a lot of time or areas where you grew up, uh, that part of the yeah. world? Yeah, no, I can definitely do that. Um, again, I'm no professional ecologist, so everything I say has gaps and, and, and whatnot, but okay. the Appalachians are, are special and anyone who lives there will tell you that. Anyone who visits there will probably tell you that as well. Um, not to say that the rest of the continent isn't full of fantastic freshwater ecosystems and things that are worth protecting. But the Appalachians are a huge hotspot. There are more species of freshwater fish in the Southern Appalachians than any other part of the temperate world. Um, the tropics are something different, but you know, for Europe and Northern Asia and um, all those other temperate regions, nowhere has what we have uh, in terms of fish. Right. So what you have is these, these chains of mountains and the headwaters of all of these different river basins. You've got these Atlantic Slope River basins. I'm from the James River drainage, uh, which flows out uh, to the Chesapeake Bay. And then you go south, you've got all these other Atlantic uh, rivers. But then you also have tributaries of the Mississippi. You have the Tennessee River Basin, which is extraordinarily biodiverse. You have the New River Basin. Uh, you go up farther north, you have the Ohio River Basin, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are a few places where you even get the uh, the Gulf drainages come up in the Mobile drainage and, and whatnot. Um, but all of these rivers have their headwaters where they have all of these tiny streams and smaller rivers flowing down off the mountains in this really biodiverse area. And so what's happened is that each of those systems has developed a fantastic array of habitats. And because of that, a fantastic array of fish. Uh, and so a really good example is a river near my home, my favorite river, ever to snorkel in, which is the Tai River, uh, T-Y-E. And this river, it starts at the Blue Ridge Parkway, which people are often familiar with, um, runs all down the Blue Ridge, and it ends down in the Virginia Piedmont, um, surrounded by apple orchards and whatnot. So at the bottom, you've got all these lowland species and these Piedmont dwelling species. I see a lot of long-nosed gar there. I see all sorts of sunfish, um, a huge array of suckers, uh, a number of other species that I didn't really associate with warmer water. But you start to go up and it changes uh, and you get up to the top and you're in a pristine brook trout stream with just brook trout, uh, Blue Ridge sculpin and, and black nosed dace, which are two of the three of the highest dwelling species. And then between that, you have everything in between because of how varied this landscape is. Uh, so habitat variation is so important for aquatic systems <clears throat> and it means just huge amounts of biodiversity. And so for listeners, you know, all, all of these river systems um, ha have no hydrologic connection. So each river system has yeah. its own yeah. cast of characters that have evolved in those specific yeah. areas, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no that's the other thing. Um, and it's it's so neat to talk to because talk about because it's so different from other forms of, of biogeography. You know, you can talk about how the trees on the north side of a mountain are different from the south side. And that's, it's true because different climactic conditions, but they can still accidentally sprout in one or the other and fish can't do that if yeah. you drive across a river basin divide and you go to another stream you're going to see different things and at the very least the things you see that are the same are genetically distinct they right. did a study recently right. in the smokies where they found that the brook trout in every stream the native brook trout were genetically different in every stream in a system 
not even different river drainages. Within the same drainage, you have these genetically distinct lineages existing just, you know, miles from each other because they're confined to that stream. And this has happened with, with so many other species as well. And that it's, kind of the, special. The, the fish that really characterize the diversity are the, are the darters, right? In the chub? Yeah, yeah. Um, chub and their associates um, are, are a good showcase of it, but I think darters do really illustrate it fantastically. So darters are, for, for all the anglers out there, um, you take a walleye and you scale it down. Uh, and it's a darter. That's what that's what people like to say. Um, same, they're pretty closely related. Same order, or, or yes, order. same family. Same yes, family. I believe so. I I think they're both still in in Persidae. I got you. Um, but they're these tiny little, usually insectivorous, insectivorous, insect. Um, they're insectivores. What's the adjective of that? That's I, it. Is that it. Is that it. We're going with it's, it. It's a long, long Monday. Um. But they're these tiny insectivorous uh, little fish, um, never more than, you know, maybe five inches for some of the really big ones. Uh, but they, they live on the bottom, typically, and they have diversified insanely. Uh, every river system, you've got all of, all of these little darters. And the neat thing is that they'll occupy different parts of the stream. So in that Thai River, the Thai River that I, I just mentioned, you have four or five types of darter. In one spot, you might have four species, one that's occupying the really fast water. Uh, so, you know, where it's almost hard to hold on, you've got one species. Then you go over to the margin where there's kind of grass falling into the water. It's a little bit siltier, bigger, uh, bigger logs maybe. And you've got another species. Then in the medium there, there's a generalist species that's going to kind of occupy the, the margin of both. Um, and then say shallow riffles have their own species as well. So they've just really diversified into every little possible niche. Uh, and they're also spectacular. So many of them, you know, candy darter, which you mentioned earlier, is a is a classic example of a, a gem of the Appalachians. They are federally endangered, but exist in West Virginia and Virginia. Uh, bright electric blue and orange. Just like yeah. what? How is this even necessary? How could you get to a point evolutionarily? Do people that like spend time in these areas, just general the general public? or people that fish out there, do they have any idea on the darter diversity or the fish diversity, you think? Like maybe they see them and they just don't think much? You know, <laughs> it's crazy. I think that if anyone does, fly fishermen sometimes do, yeah. um, if only because they are food for larger game fish. But this is the thing that gets me about all of this all the time and that I talk about sometimes probably too much in, in workshops and classes, which is that these fish have evolved to not be seen. Okay. Yeah. And that is the thing about freshwater fish that is so, I mean, fantastic evolutionarily. It's really fantastic how they've all done this, but does not end up going well for them. So take the mountain red belly dace, common associate on these chub nests. Absolutely just ridiculous. Like, I know it's the third time I've said it in the last 20 minutes, but just absolutely gorgeous bright red and yellow, um, but their back is a mottled olive. And uh, so if so even hundreds, even hundreds swarming on a chub nest look like nothing from above water. And I've almost walked side, right past them. You have to look at a side pro profile. Yeah, exactly. Because they have, they've realized that if they're real colorful on the top, birds are going to get them and other stuff's going to see them. And if they are colorful on the side, then their fellow fish that they need to see uh, will see each other and no one else will. 
And yeah. it's just such a fantastic evolutionary trait. Even candy darters, you know, bright blue and orange, but their back is is brown. Is it the um, males? Gonna... Is it mainly the males that are colorful with all it's, these species? All males, sexual, yeah. sexual uh, selection. Yeah, they're definitely exceptions i want to say and they're definitely species where both are really colorful but it is typically if one is the males are yeah um the general theme with colorful species yeah yeah but it's a neat it's a neat thing because if people aren't shown i don't think they typically know yeah um, i've shown mountain red belly days to people who have lived in in a spot full of them for years and years and years and years and they've never seen that and they are just mind blown by the colors that they're seeing pulled up in the net i'm actually guilty of being darter blind um we don't have great darter diversity in southeast texas but we happen to have like in the county i live in it's like in the coastal prairie like in the coastal plain i'm, I'm up you know 50 minutes away from the beach um we do have yeah. one species and i didn't know they even existed here or i didn't know they existed at all and i, I went out with texas state university to do surveys for them and they sent me the pin for the spot and it was like this drainage ditch i grew up curping in my whole life and we show up and there's harlequin darters in there which wow. is a, i don't know if you've heard are you familiar with yeah harlequin? no they're 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 neat ones they're incredible looking and i didn't even get to yeah. see them in and kind of their their peak color um but here i am i've lived here my whole life and i didn't know these fish existed in the drainage ditches terrible habitat i actually don't know how they make a living there it's it's very altered you know these streams have all been ditched um and concreted and they're not they're the natural hydrology and ecology is just really disrupted but they exist which is incredible and uh going there with the saying and they're just there's hundreds of them <laughs> it's yeah yeah no and it's a common theme that um, even really outdoorsy people miss these species because they are so easy to miss. You you have to look. You have to be. I'm going out looking for darters and, and dace today, and I probably won't see them. Candy darters, even in their habitat, they can be really skittish and hard to see, um, despite the fact that they are insanely colorful. And it just becomes a common theme. And it's fantastic for the species ecologically that they are this good at not being seen. But it means that I think that there is a direct pipeline between visibility to the average person and how much funding they get for conservation. And that's why you're out there getting those photographs. This is, this is the, the impetus for, for all of this. Yeah. Um, now, to paint the picture for people, I don't know if you've explained this, but I guess what really characterizes darters, too, is how they hug the bottom. They like never go yep, further up yep. in the water column, right? They're almost exclusive yeah, they're, they're, the bottom. There are a couple species that'll that'll hover a little, but mostly, yeah, they are bottom dwellers. Yeah. Um, you know, rivers are and streams are very different from uh, the open ocean. They have a very distinct habitat delineation by water column. It's another reason there's so much diversity is that on every axis there is different habitats happening. You go across the river, different types of habitat, you know, slower margin, faster middle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You go up and down the river, you're going to have different speeds of water, different temperatures, different elevations, different habitats. And if you go within the river and go from the bottom to the top, you're also getting different habitats. There are plenty of species in the southeast that never leave the top, plenty that never leave the bottom, plenty that never leave the middle. Um, it's and darters have very much taken that that bottom role in a lot of places. So they'll be down in between rocks and under rocks and poking 
poking around. Some of them have learned to flip rocks and look for insects under them. Log perch are the, the classic there. Yeah. Um, immensely variable behavior, immensely variable color. Uh, a lot of them spawn in different ways. They've figured out so many ways to diversify. And I, I of course, I say figure out, knowing that it's evolution doing that. But what is your favorite darter species or favorite experience photographing darters? Um, probably seventh or eighth grade, I was catching fish with a really terrible little dip net, probably from like Walmart in the creek behind um, one of the buildings where my parents work in Lexington, Virginia, a little college town. And they've got this, this really nice greenway along a stream. And I've learned a lot about what I know now about local fish in that stream. And I pulled up this darter and it was, I'm used to fantail darters there. I'd seen a lot of them. Uh, they're, they're a relatively common species um, across a lot of the Eastern US. But I had never seen this fish that I had pulled up and it was jet black with beautiful iridescent turquoise all down the side and bright orange fins. Like one of these just crazy looking fish that just doesn't look like it's supposed to be in this creek. Um, and I went home and I looked it up and it was a long fin darter, uh, which I had never heard of because very few people have, that is fully endemic to my river drainage, found nowhere else in the world, but in the upper James River drainage in Virginia and one single stream in West Virginia and nowhere else. And they're doing fine because they're not super um, habitat specific. They exist in a lot of streams in the drainage, but they, they exist nowhere else and they're spectacularly beautiful. And if you look them up on Google, last time I checked, there's like five pictures and I'm three of them, something <laughs> like that. It's uh, what is the species again? Long fin darter. Okay. Uh, and they have beautiful flowing dorsal fins and big pectoral fins as well. Uh, breeding males are just, just spectacular. God. But that's got to be that's got to be my favorite. Yeah. No, they're just. So. There are a few more pictures now. Like they're they're they remind me of a uh, like a beta fish, you know, like for people like listening. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it's got yeah. this. Like the dorsal fins and like the, the colors and way more fascinating than a betta fish, of course. <laughs> well, I mean they're they're fascinating in their own right as well. Have you thought they're about those? Have it's you thought about those? What their what their natural ecology is? It must be pretty cool. I, I I follow you know a few people over in South Asia where I think a lot of them are from, and there's so many types of beta for one thing. They're it's, yeah, they're, it's a, they're a diverse group. Gotcha. But yeah. I do I think some of them. Do actually live in these tiny little forest puddles. Oh, that's cool. That are I might be fully making this up. I really uh, hope I'm not. Um, sounds but, good. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Um, no, they have they have neat natural habits, and I mean all these behaviors that people complain about all the time, like that males will kill each other if they're put in a small habitat. That that must have evolved for some ecological purpose. There must be something really interesting about the places they occupy that led to that behavior. Um, what are some, you know, um, what are areas in the world and or different fish groups that you're like, that are your dream to experience and see? Oh, that's a really good question. I think mountain, I'm biased towards clear water just because I love to snorkel. Yeah. I think river snorkeling is the singular, not the singular, but one of the most singularly underappreciated forms of ecotourism in a lot of regions in the world. Um, I, why I'm working so hard right now in Virginia to get it um, into the public eye. 
I've done some work with our, our state wildlife magazine to kind of get it out there. I'm working with the Native Fish Coalition now to do similar things. But yeah. with all that needs is clear water. So with just, that, you can have five inches in depth. You, you can, can see, see goldfish diversity. Now, do you want to? So you want to encourage people to do this, but obviously you want to encourage um, ethical practices as well, right? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And I've, this is something I think a lot about. I've had a lot of conversations about this in the last month or so, especially. Um, and kind of where I've come down to with it is that. So right now, uh, state of Virginia and so many other states, um, so much of their income is coming from stocking not native fish. Hmm. They're taking fish not found even on the side of the continent where they are and getting put in the millions in rivers. Um, some of which are, are, you know, documentedly invasive species in some like places. What? Such as like what species? Like rainbow trout. Rainbow trout. Um, or if you think about the black basses, smallmouth bass and largemouth bass, we kind of just assume they're supposed to be everywhere they are, but we don't even know their the extent of their range in some cases. Um, and in some of the literature I've read, they, people are just kind of stumped because they've been being moved around for so long. And it's causing a problem now that we're realizing how many more of those are genetically distinct than we than we thought before. Is that, um, sorry, we're going on tangents now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is that a potential issue for um, all these darters and all this other fish diversity when you have a non native apex fish introduced? Absolutely. Um, no, any apex species, especially, but any introduced species. The thing, the thing is, there are so many niches, um, niches, niches, whatever you want to say, um, going on in these streams that any species that has not been there is going to disrupt something um, in general. And again, there are absolutely exceptions. I'm, you know, what I say is not the end all be all here at all. Uh, but I mean, one thing they've done is, is pushed out the native apex species. Um, the brook trout. When so many sunfish species too have oh, moved yeah. around. Yeah, um, yeah so brook trout. I love, I love the sunfishes. Yeah. Brook trout hugely hugely affected by rainbow trap, but we also, you know, the state stocking bluegill and, and pumpkin seed and these different species that were originally had very distinct ranges that have just been kind of flatly painted across the entire seaboard. What do you um, think which, of that? And what do you think the reasons are for stocking all these sport fish? Obviously, it's probably a money related issue, I would assume. Oh, absolutely. And I also, you know, I've talked to people with the agency who were like, you know, it's unfortunate that we're doing this. This is just what's been done for hundreds of years. This is our business model. And our funding then goes to things like conserving endangered species within the state. Yeah. You know, an endangered woodpecker gets funding from the state. Some of that money came from fishing licenses to fish for rainbow trout that we reared and released into a creek. Uh, so it's very a flawed, really very flawed system. <laughs> very flawed system, but it also means that it's a complicated thing to address. Yeah. Um, but also uh, back to the ethics of snorkeling, because I, I do want to yeah, yeah, talk yeah. about that for a second, because it's a really interesting question and it's a really good thing for people to think about. I think that with that being the status quo for so much of angling, and angling being the big way that people interact with fish right now, and the big pusher of how we think about rivers and streams. So the state is going to treat rivers and streams as valuable for the things that they provide that people will pay do. money. And right now, that is hugely skewed towards fishing and angling. And I'm not anti-fishing and angling. I you, you never know, partake. I do myself. 
I don't really partake. I love to watch these species existing in their world. I love to go down and see their behaviors and, behavior. yeah. and their colors. Um, that that's now that's my that's what I love. There are doing. fish nerds going out and catching these darters on like little micro yeah. rigs. That's really interesting. But yeah, continue no, it is. What saying. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'd be happy to talk about that afterwards too. I have a lot of thoughts there as well. But in the end, I think that if we are treating rivers and streams as things that people snorkel in. And if that somehow in the stream scenario became uh, a popular activity that people were spending money in the local economy to do and traveling from out of state to do, that would be better overall for the species there, I think, because they would be treated as these diverse ecosystems. And if the candy darter, the candy darter does get a decent bit of funding because it's so beautiful. Um, but if it became the name, the name helps too. Yeah. Well, they actually changed it at one point. It used to be the fine scale saddle darter. Oh, that's not no near as interesting as okay. anything about. Um, yeah, so they, any darter, they probably had a lot more fun. <laughs> no, and there's there's such a there must be such a correlation there. I don't obviously don't have any numbers, but you go to a creek and you're going to fish in it, and you don't know any of these other species. You're probably I've trout fishermen have a habit of stepping on chub mounds. This is a thing that happens. No, we'll step terrible. on these 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 beds of thousands of eggs, and I just think that getting more people in the water with an eye for everything in the water there's just no way it can be worse that's how i in general man i work in the duck haul industry now i'm really deep in hunting industry and i care a lot about it but i look around and i'm like all all you people that enjoy getting out or going out early in the morning to hunt ducks you would enjoy learning more about the marsh ecosystem it would just improve your experience the more you know yeah you know and, no, and, it means do. And, and there's plenty of hunters that are turning into more hunter naturalist types, which is, which is really cool. But so, yeah, no, I agree. It's, yeah, no. And, and I totally agree with that as well. Um, you know, and I've thought about risks. Like if you have a section of stream that hundreds of people are routinely crawling around in and dislodging rocks and things like that's going to be bad. But the thing is, that's just a, not probably going to happen. Uh, and B, it's still, you know, that's that that shouldn't happen, but it's really not going to. And there are so many places for this to happen that if this became Spread something it. that lots and lots of people were doing, it would be all right. And currently that amount of people is going out in waders and walking around through streams with a fishing rod, um, which again, I'm not opposed to, but it certainly has its 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 own micro damages to the ecosystem as well. Uh, and anything... In my book, anything that is promoting the stocking of a non-native species into an ecosystem where it is not historically from is a detriment. I I fall pretty solidly on that one. I'm but that's sure kind of are, the basis. Yeah. I'm sure there are people that right. would disagree with uh, your interest in, in, in making uh, snorkeling more of a thing because of, you know, possible impacts. And and it's like, I'm, I'm a hypocrite of, of this sort of thing, you know, I'm interested in these really rare plant communities in East Texas. I'm like, oh, people need to care about them, but I don't tell anybody. I don't share these yeah. spots with anybody because some of these species are so sensitive. If you have people trampling oh, around, there, it, it can have impacts. So that's like, the, it's stuff like this that um, is really difficult as a passionate natural yeah. conservationist. No, I'm really glad that you you brought this up and we got to talk about this because it's something I've been thinking about a lot. And I think there is, there's always a case by case aspect of it. Um, you know, for instance, the creek where I photographed those candy darters, 
within the community, it's an open secret, like people know where that is. But if I put together, you know, say a guide to spots to snorkel in Western Virginia, which I've actually hoped to do uh, at some point in some form, that creek ain't going to be on there because certain spots need to be gate kept. Oh, absolutely. Um, Gatekeeping has its place when it comes to rare sites. Yeah, it it does. As that sounds. No, and it's, it's, it's a hard dilemma, but what's the alternative? The alternative is we keep going forward where we're going and where we're going is catastrophic loss of biodiversity. The biodiversity crisis is, is real. We're losing things so quickly and freshwater habitats are the most endangered group of habitats on the planet and freshwater fish are so drastically underappreciated that we're losing them faster than other things. Where are these darters and these, these different fish uh, communities where you spend a lot of time in these streams, where are they at? Like, are, like, do you see these places impacts or are they already conserved or protected? Like, do you, are you able to at least um, have the assurance that the places that you spend a lot of time and love the most are fine that's a really it's a good question um it's very much a site by site thing the thing is that that always gets me is that there is it takes so little to really destroy a stream it takes you know if you have a big tract of forest um and say there's a clear cut and it's you know 10 percent of that forest it's it's bad but from the erosion not you know it's well, for the forest, like that's a that's a big loss, but you haven't lost the whole thing. It's probably still supporting a lot of the species it was supporting before. But say there's a creek running alongside that clear cut, that's just you know absolutely awful for a little while. You may be so silted that a sensitive species is lost. You want to explain um, why silting why, why why siltation is so bad? Why silting is so bad? Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. So, Although so many adjacent these- upland habitats are so important for the stream itself. Yes. Yeah. So. I, I say this to students a lot too, is that every stream is a reflection of every inch of land within its catchment. Um, every stream, you know, A, the two main things to keep in mind, water flows downstream and all of that water is being caught in this greater basin that yeah. and every, every bit of that land matters. So silt is so common in our streams. Now, there are journals uh, talking about the James River when when colonists got there and it being crystal clear at the bottom, which is staggeringly impossible for me to imagine. Uh, Mark Twain wrote about the Ohio River mixing with the Mississippi River, and it was a crystal clear river mixing with this this muddier lowland river. That's the Ohio River. The Ohio River does not look like that now, and it probably never will again. Uh, It's this huge muddy river that's draining so much of Ohio all the way up to New York and Pennsylvania and West Virginia and the New River, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But all of that land was stable enough that there was not enough silt getting in to, to muddy up these rivers. And now that is not the case in the vast majority of rivers because uh, we have, over the last you know 300 years, 400 years, we have disturbed so much land and we still disturb land at such a quick rate that all this silt gets in the water. And so what that does to the fish, your original question, uh, is it affects most parts of their life, but uh, the biggest part is breeding. Um, again, the chub build these mounds so that there's good, clean, oxygenated water getting to their eggs. Uh, but not every fish can do that. So lots of darters need these crevices between rocks to lay their eggs. Lots of other species do as well. And simply when you lose that, you lose the only place they can reproduce. 
you lose gravel bars. So many species need gravel bars. You lose um, good uh, uh, clear riffles. So yep. many spawning habitats there that are gone. Um, it's just absolutely crucial that there not be silt in rivers. The Roanoke log perch is a big one in Virginia that we've lost uh, because of that. I think other species, the spotfin chub, not actually one of the mound building chub, ironically, but a beautiful electric blue fish, insane looking fish, absolutely stupid looking fish found down in Western North Carolina and Tennessee. Um, and they spawn in rock crevices. So they need big pieces of bedrock with clean crevices that they just kind of tuck their eggs down in. And just a little bit of siltation makes those crevices completely unusable to them. And we've lost them from a lot of places um, for that reason. And so that's what we're working with. We're working with these really, really sensitive habitats full of species that are not appreciated or seen simply by virtue of they're just not accessible. Right. Um, and these habitats that can change on a dime and you won't even know what you lost. Yeah. When they... So are, are you familiar with, with conservation fisheries? You probably are from... I've heard of it, but I, yeah, I don't know much. So fantastic organization. I, you know, if anyone ever wants to buy fantastic merch from somewhere or has a few dollars and wants it to go to a good cause, they always, always need funding. But this is a couple guys, uh, Patrick Rakes and J.R. Shoot in Knoxville, uh, got started because... <laughs> Here, here's where it all comes back to. They poisoned a whole stream with ichthyocides so that they could better stock it with trout. Don't don't even ask me what the, the reasoning there was. Um, but I believe, I believe this was, was Abrams Creek in eastern Tennessee. And they realized, of course, pretty much immediately after that they had wiped out a huge number of native and, and one fish that they discovered that they thought only lived in that stream um, after the fact, uh, the Smoky Mad Tom. And and I think another manton too. It was, it was the, the small old, catfish. Yes, yeah, small two small catfish species. Um, and I'm probably remembering details here wrong, but these guys got their got their start by just they were like, well, man, we're just going to start raising these things in aquariums, then put them back out there as soon as the habitat's back because the habitat is so sensitive. And so now they're a full fish hatchery, a huge fish hatchery, uh, and they specialize in hatching and rearing and releasing these non-sport fish that are endemic and endangered that no one else is, is working with. That must have been an interesting fantastic. interesting journey to get to uh, get through the formal process of being able to do uh, you yeah. know releases and relocate or uh, reintroductions rather. No, it's it's true and they have a lot of partners now. They actually work they actually I think they advise the Fish and Wildlife Service now because they are so good at what they do because all of these fish have unique breeding patterns and they had to just trial and error for all of these species, all these darters and mad toms and minnows and um they had to figure out how to get them to lay eggs, how to raise the young, how to feed them, how to feed every stage of life and then how to get them back out into rivers. So were these just um, some people that are really passionate about the fish or were they, were they connected to universities? Like, well, who are they? Yeah. Um, man, I should remember this. I wrote a, I wrote a piece about them for Virginia okay. Wildlife Magazine a couple of years ago, but I want to say UT, they just posted a big history series on okay. their Instagram about the history of the organization. I, I think college affiliated yeah, uh, but now this yeah. is their full time. This is what they do. They, so, yeah, they raise you. and rear these endangered fish. Are they the only uh, fishery that's working with darters and all these more obscure non-sport fish? 
not the only um, uh, state and federal agencies do work with them on that scale, at least on that scale. Yeah, but they are they're the only group that I can think of that is only doing that. Yeah, yeah. Where they so, are, they're a lot, nonprofit. Yeah, plenty of universities yeah, and I, state agencies do work yeah, for like an yeah. endangered darter here and there. Like I know yeah. WD does some stuff or Texas State. Anyway, um, yeah. but they're the only like dedicated fishery that does this sort of stuff. As yeah, far as to my to my knowledge, um, and they're out of Tennessee. Just yes, out of Knoxville, out of a out of a warehouse in Knoxville. I got to visit. Fantastic experience to get to see this operation in in, uh, in person. But their work is it's just so tangible. They are they see the problem. We are losing these species, and they said we're going to do something about it. And they have they have re they have completely reestablished some populations that had been completely lost. They have. Uh, stabilized arc populations of a couple species that don't currently have wild habitat, um, and they are constantly taking on new species and advising other other groups in how to rear other species. Uh, it's just we would be losing, you know, we're still losing species, but right. we're probably losing them a bit slower because the work these people are putting in. So where do you what do you think about the future for for these um, freshwater fish and just the biodiversity issue in general? You said you're yeah. you're kind of an optimist, but it depends on the topic. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, it's a hard, it's a hard thing to to contemplate. Um, and sometimes, like when I'm con when I've contemplated career, yeah, it's like, man, there's one option that's really sad and doesn't look good, or I could be a musician. Yeah. Another way I frame this up is: Where do you think we are in the conservation story when historians yeah. are are studying? Our gener our time here, working with biodiversity. That's another way you can frame it. It's, it's a good question, you know. And again, any anything I say here is the uh, the perspective of a nineteen year old undecided major college student. But we're at a <laughs> tell yourself, man. You're, you 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 really are passionate. And know your stuff. Age is uh pretty pretty well, I, useless. <laughs> I know stuff from hold yourself from to a high standard. Yeah. Um, and I don't know the history of everything that I should. I'm right. always really interested to learn it. Um, so I, I don't know how much historically I can speak. I certainly think that we are not doing enough right this second. Yeah. I think that we're losing things, and I think that we're going to continue losing things. And I think that there's still a disjointed way that we talk about things. Yeah. Um, and I think that there is a lot of dissonance between species conservation and environmental conservation when they are the same thing. Um, and we talk so much about um, uh, climate issues on a social level when all of that is completely intertwined with wildlife conservation. You know, fish can't move. That's another thing about rivers is you can't get out of a river if you only breathe water. Right. Uh, so as the as climates shift, um, species are already getting pushed up higher in the Appalachians. Is that, is that, that a, a primary threat to these montane streams, these high elevation streams and fish? I think it's a pretty big one, and I think that it'll only get bigger. Is it, is um, it, is it tangible? As a whole. Is it tangible yet? Because for some people, climate change is still very hard to like understand on a tangible yeah. level, you know. But in these high elevation streams, are you able to to appreciate the effects more? I think I think you are. So, for instance, right now, Shenandoah National Park is under extreme drought. Yeah. Um, a lot of these, there are streams that have completely dried up 
Yeah. Um, and this, you know, drastic alteration of weather patterns and general heating, you know, we've had like what every month in the past, like five months has been the hottest on record. Texas it, suffered greatly. Like, it was, it was yeah, bad. Yeah. And you know, the Creek by my house has never dried up as far as my, as long as my grandpa's lived there for the past 60 years, which that's not a great sample time period, but it's still pretty significant. Like I never, I live in a high rainfall region you know, yeah, coastal plain yeah. in Southeast Texas, like right by Louisiana and the, the, the perennial stream dried up completely. All the fish wow. were, like, just died. <laughs> no, it, well, there you go. There's your answer. It's like when that kind of drastic change becomes the norm, these, they can't move, they can't leave. And it's really hard for them to seek shelter uh, in the <laughs> way that other species can. And there are lots of other species in that situation too. Salamanders are, we're going to lose a bunch of them really oh. soon that are, the I salamander diversity it coincides with the fish diversity in that region. Yes, absolutely. Apple. No, exact same places. Oh, uh, oh, one of my favorite old. streams yeah. coincides with one of the salamander hotspots in the stream, in the state. Um, yeah, no, I, you know, again, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not a biologist, but I think that the nature of aquatic ecosystems means that they are at huge risk from that kind of larger shift. Um, especially for migratory species, especially for species that have very specific niches and for species. The other big thing is spawning time. So all of these fish are really keyed in to spawn and reproduce at very certain times. And so these minnows that nest on chub mounds are really keyed into when the chub are nesting and the chub are net keyed into all these other issues and all these other species are keyed into all these other varying factors. Um, factors that are, you know, the, the big ones are, are temperature, water level, oxygenation, these things. There are other ones that people think also factor into them. There's a contingent that really thinks that moon phase is really, really important for whatever reason and, you know, all these other things. But it's been getting erratic. It's been, man, this spring was weird. There were some streams where they got really warm really early because of like unnaturally un unseasonably early heat where fish started spawning way early but then it just drops and so they've spent all this energy getting into their breeding attire and not eating because they're going to spawn and then the water temps drop and they just don't have successful spawns yeah um I've, I've seen this happening and then other streams that because they're higher elevation never got warm and then we had an unseasonably cold may and june and so i was finding active chub mounds in july which is insane for where I am in these little mountain streams. And a lot of the chub never got to build a mound. Uh, I saw way fewer mounds than I was used to in, in these same streams. So as these systems become in, in greater flux and as they change more and more rapidly, it is just not good news. Interesting um, to reflect, you know, I, I don't know how long these river systems have existed in this mountain range, but these are some of the yeah. oldest mountains in the world, older than the Himalayas, yeah. right? Yeah. Second but oldest river in the world. Been yeah. Fine tuned over vast geologic time. I don't know what the, the time range is, or I don't know if you're in tune with that knowledge, but for for yeah. these species to uh, fill, fill these niches and speciate and um, zero in their, their life histories for millions of years, and then for things to just start getting like, Bounced, bounced around in such short time frames is surely problematic, you know, climate. Yeah. Yeah. No, ab absolutely. And again, they've adapted to these certain stretches of streams, sometimes just a mile or two. Um, a lot of that is temperature based. Yeah. 
And so every every species suffers when unnaturally rapid climate shifts happen. But yeah. species that are in freshwater systems are especially vulnerable um, for all of those reasons. So that's that's a big thing, and that needs to be factored into things. There, if I started listing threats to freshwater fish, we would we would be here for another three <laughs> hours. But which yeah. is the sad reality of things. But I also think that right now there is more attention being paid to them than there ever has been. Yeah. Um, at least for has the community grown the the. The yes. fish nerd community. Yeah, that's the other thing. And part of the Instagram reason I say is that part of that, right? Yeah. I think Instagram has played a really big part. I think that just general public communication has gotten better as well. So for instance, are you familiar with the, the Blue Ridge Snorkel Trail? Mm-hmm. Um, Sounds great though. Awesome, awesome project uh came up came up with by Luke Etchison and somebody else, and I cannot remember her name, and I really wish I could. Um, but in North Carolina. Uh, they've set up these places with signboards and a website listing for all these places for people to snorkel. And they had all these launch events. It was just so overwhelmingly popular. So many people showed up to their events and came out to learn how to snorkel in their local rivers. Um, and then suddenly I've seen this flurry of articles about river snorkeling. And it's kind of just like five years ago that that didn't happen. Like I, I pitched a an article four years ago, I think, to Virginia Wildlife, and they took it, and it was, um, man, I thought I was doing like the, the something completely new, and then I found one other article that was published like the year before that, and then just more and more recently, um, and there's just more and more of a highlight for it, uh, and maybe it's just that I'm getting more looped in, but I think that there is a real growing sense of excitement about a lot of species that have never been looked at before. And I think at the forefront of this are some state agencies, which have realized that in order to conserve everything, everyone should get excited about everything. Um, but also things like social media, which exist to spread the word. People who got on social media because they're a birder and they ended up really getting into reptiles or they got onto social media because they really liked snakes, but then they learned about freshwater fish. Like the, hey man, there's I'm in that camp. I, yeah, I yeah, me too. Realized, you don't understand how bad I want to go to the Appalachians and experience the fish diversity there yeah. and but in my head i'm like i gotta get wow. an underwater camera i cannot do it without a camera though i have to get the dream shot is of any of those darters underwater like when i look at your feet or zimmerman or isaac like that stuff is so fascinating i could see myself being completely sucked in if i'd had more no, access you do. Just, you do at this point and it's such it's so fun for me but well, it's just such a big pivot i love diversity topic. i love diversity yeah and, beautiful species and so no, and it's like more so than almost anything else that i have gotten into you can get into a stream and if you're not familiar with that stream you have no idea everything that you're going to see you can probably make a pretty good guess about a lot of them mm-hmm. but you're going to see something that you did not expect to see i'll get into a stream that i've gotten into a bunch of times and suddenly there's a native lamprey it's like where did that come from never never seen that here before one thing that i always love seeing and never expect to see that I've seen a few times in the Thai River are eels. Yeah. Um, I'll run into an American eel in a mountain stream next to a brook trout <laughs> and out from under a rock pops an eel and it swims across. And it's just like, these rivers are so complex. There is so much going on in here. It's, it's spectacular. And I gotta I gotta meet you out there someday. Yeah, no, come on out. Um, I would, anytime, yeah. uh, would, would love to take you. What's the best time of year to, to snorkel for, for fish out there? 
Uh, great, great question. Depends on the species. Uh, darters typically spawn earlier, but depends on species as well. So generally between April and early July. And you're going to see uh, the May males. Are the hot spot. Um, you see the males in the best colors around yes, this. Yeah. You know, I'm super keyed into chub mounds. This is my my passion is, okay. is these nest builders with their fantastically colorful species. Um, and it's different in every stream. Part of the joy has been like, in spring, I'll get really obsessively into looking at the USGS water data gauges. Yeah. And I'll be watching the water level and watching the water temperature and it peaks up yep. to just the right point. They have turbidity too, or does that calculate? Yeah, anything? some of them do. It depends on the station. A really great resource. But, and I, I've gotten to know some of my local streams enough that I can be like, oh, well, if this one's that warm, this one's probably this warm. I'm going to guess that today they're going to spawn. Because sometimes it's just one day. Um, there's a species down in Alabama, Rainbow Shiners, which you've probably seen pictures of from Isaac. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's one of his most famous series, I think. Um that people are realizing kind of only have one big spawn. It's just one day that's perfect. And one day I pulled up to this tiny creek next to a Baptist church in the middle of nowhere, rural Alabama, uh, with my good friend Ned Rose, another fantastic um, underwater freshwater photographer. And there were two other cars parked there. One of them was Andrew Zimmerman, <laughs> and one of them was Todd Pusser, two underwater photographers that I immensely admire their work both had shown up completely uncoordinated that day to this tiny stream this tiny like gravel pull off again middle of nowhere off an interstate corridor like next to this church and we were all kind of like it was sunday so we were trying not to like disturb <laughs> the, the people worship it it's like these three parties in this tiny little community looked at the same water data and made the same conclusion that today was the day we were all wrong. They didn't, it wasn't the big spawn day, but we all sat around talking about how we thought it was the big spawn day. And it was just a, a beautiful moment. That's, a, that's incredible. One thing, um, I wanted to get your take on the micro fishing community that's growing. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of very passionate fish people, but they're experiencing yeah. fish in a different way than you do. Yeah. Um, no, absolutely. It's, and I know uh, good friends who are uh, really, really into that part of it. Um, and I'm always interested to see it in action. Uh, you know, my, my my joy outdoors is never messing with something. That's just kind of my, just how I exist. It's not how other people have to. But um, for me, the best way for me to interact with anything is to you know not interact and to to observe and right. to get to see things and photograph things, doing what they naturally do, existing in their involvement. Why you're interested in fish? Because you can't like with herps. Yeah. A lot of times you can't really observe behavior very often. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's why snorkeling is so fantastic in that way in a way that even bird watching isn't yeah. um because you can't get very close to birds fish if you are on their level and you're in the water they'll, they'll be, be right in front of you and the darters are not uh shy generally no no and are different yeah, species, but, but different. in general though you, you get close and they're just they're like got their own little personalities yeah no they absolutely there are fish that Sometimes it does feel like I am interacting, but on like a person-to-person -person basis. Like <laughs> yeah. snorkeling with Roanoke log perch, they are inquisitive. They are coming up to you and they are looking you dead in the eye and they are wondering what you are and what you're doing in their home. And no one will be able to convince me that that's not what they're doing. Um, because they they come and they, they will look at you. Uh, bass are really smart. Bass will come up to you. Um, and they're all hardwired to, to flee from overhead predators. 
but big clumsy log looking things with cameras are not what they're trying to, to run away from. Same so thing. when you're in the, the water, same experience right with there. I have the same experience with when I've snorkeled with crocodilians. They're not used to seeing a large yeah. mammal face to face in the water. So they're like, oh, what the hell's going on? There's, it's like I, this isn't a situation I've needed to deal with, so yeah. they don't. And, it's, it's, yeah. and when they're spawning, you can grab them. Mountain yeah. red belly dace on a chub mound. If they are in spawning mode and there are hundreds of them swarming this mound, you can just pick them up off off the mound. Um, so that's again, that's where that's where I come to it. But I think that things like microfishing can be really fantastic um, for these species as well because microfishing celebrates native biodiversity in a yeah. way that a lot of mainstream fishing does not. These people understand that this stream is home to a very specific array of species that is not found anywhere else, and they understand the threats to them. They know what in, invasive species are, are pushing out other lesser-known species, and they're aware of those things. Yeah. And actually putting one line into the water and catching one darter is probably less damaging overall than me crawling around in that rapid for a few minutes to look at the darter, even no matter how hard I try to be undamaging. And I do think snorkeling can be done really responsibly. Yeah. I think it can be really, really, you know, minimally affecting. I think you're putting the example that microfishing is very safe, but like, yeah, what you do is obviously not a problem either. Yeah, no, it's it becomes splitting hairs, but it's contrasting the two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I don't really, even if I wanted to, I wouldn't really have room to talk there because, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to personally put a fish on a hook. It's just not something I enjoy doing. Um, I've spent too much time engaging with fish and worrying about their individual well-being. I love keeping aquariums as well. I haven't in a while, but I used to keep a lot of native fish. Um, and and you know, seeing their complex lives, I think that they are really complex animals that we don't treat as such often i'm guilty but, of that you know to me fish are on the lower part of the totem pole of vertebrates and i grew up in the angling community the hunting and angling yeah. community and so coming from that side of it i mean i've always been like a biodiversity rat but like getting into fish in your in your perspective through your lens is is yeah. a very novel experience for me but yeah I, way more interesting because i used to fish bass tournaments in high school that was i did it i can i fished competitively for two years and i thought i thought it was amazing and it, it is kind of cool like the kind of skills people acquire to catch a largemouth bass and to be able to catch you know the the heavier bags and the heavier fish like i appreciate it still a little bit but it's not near as interesting as going out into a stream and, and observing fish diversity like that's much more inter interesting to me now you know, and and both perspectives are are super important. It's it's yeah. just what I uh, come to. But that is, yeah, what what you just said. That's what I find yeah. super interesting. And so that's um, speaker just died, but that's all right. Okay. Um, yeah. No, sorry, lost my train of thought. But it's still, you know, anything that is highlighting diversity and is going to motivate people to want to protect these really sensitive systems is is a win to me. I think your idea to 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 bring ecotourism to these streams is really really interesting. I mean, people pay tons of money and spend lots of time going out to see colorful fish in the ocean. Yeah, and right oh, yeah. here in North America, you could go to a stream and see just as many colors or close. You know, you could see colors, a lot of colors yeah. in the fish. Yeah, 
And that's just no, right look there. At, <laughs> look at Costa Rica, you know, look at Belize, look at countries that have made their entire, not their entire, but a huge part Please, of their economy. Is, yeah, ecotourism is huge in some of these countries. Yeah. Yeah. It is, is just that kind of thing. And it wouldn't take anything even near that scale, just recognizing um, that value. And there is kind of like, for me, a compromising of ethics there somewhere because I don't like to think about anything in financial terms. For for me, my my code <laughs> of ethics is built on the idea that every living thing is inherently freaking awesome. And we have to put dollar values. Value. We have to put dollar values in conservation. Yep. That's just yep. the reality yep. of the fucked up world we live in. <laughs> yep. It's it's entirely it's entirely true. It's hard to accept um, that, but yeah, it's but true. The closer we can get, I think, to putting the same dollar value on every species is a win for me. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. For yeah. Sure. I don't know. And and before we end, you I just want to say real quick. Yeah, any we, can, we talked can... about there is definitely this this view of fish being lower. It's deeply, deeply enshrined in everything. Right. That uh, we yeah. do. Um and I'm not I'm not no, 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 put it all out there, man. Put it all um, out there. but man, they are so complex. Yeah. They are so smart, some of them too. Fish They've been are around longer than any other vertebrate. Yeah, yeah. And just because we don't, you know, interact with them in the same way that they might interact with us, um, I think we miss out on a lot of just how complex their behavior and communication is. Um, you know, for instance, they, the study just this year or in the last year, uh, they found that a wrasse, a coral reef fish, could fully pass the mirror test that dogs can't even pass. Um, and there's a bias towards visual species there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole thing about dogs smelling each other that makes that result a little bit weird. But regardless, there are fish that can recognize impressive. that the thing in the mirror is them. It's impressive. Um, and they can recognize other fish by facial features. They have social interactions with each other as individuals, and they have a concept of what they individually look like. And this fish is three inches long. <laughs> it's pretty um, And it's absolutely insane and then you have you know chub which i've watched them build their mounds they are just such intentional organisms if if not anything else they're fantastic engineers um they take these rocks and the care they take to place them in the right place on the mound and then they'll move them around once i tried to watch i watched one try to jam a stick deep into the mound for a really long time and it got visibly confused when it would float away and <laughs> would consider it and then try and decide if it needed to go for a rock or you know um they're they're have complex personalities they have complex interactions with each other yeah uh, and it's just something we don't get to see well they're the diversity of fish is completely fucking bonkers yeah, just yeah. In the, I, mean, I, I was at the houston zoo yesterday and they have some different aquarium exhibits with like saltwater fish and they have an amazonian fish exhibit and the the, the cult like the diversity and the colors and just how strange they are, you know, across the board. I, yeah. I, I could, I could, if every other vertebrate was gone, I would still be entertained. By yeah, no, that's alone. <laughs> exactly know? how I feel. I could do without herps and birds and everything else. If, uh, if I like fish would fill fill everything I needed, you know. Yeah, and no, it's about the Am the Amazonian fish diversity, and then oh yeah, like oh dude, it's. It's, it's kind of crazy. You know what the problem though is it's harder to appreciate like for example the Amazonian fish diversity because you can't just go out there and see it. You know like you yeah. gotta, you gotta throw like a hook and you know like catch the species or there's not a yeah. whole lot of snorkeling to do. 
No, it's That's why they remain so underappreciated. No, it's a little bit of a conundrum as a snorkeler is that so many habitats are actually naturally not clear. That's um, the area I grew up in. We have very few areas. I have like one yeah. river that I snorkel and it's at the dam because like the water coming out of the reservoir is just oh, comes yeah. very clear yeah. and I can snorkel. Um, I can actually snorkel blue suckers there, which is probably the coolest. Oh, that's neat. I find, yeah. I find a lot of them shot by bow fishermen out there, which is unfortunate. Um but uh, there's and there's a couple other species, no darters there. But the hill country has some very nice streams, spring that's, fed. No, that's some endemic bucket list. You asked about bucket list places for me. The Devil's River yeah. in Texas is one of those places. That so I haven't been. I've been. In, I've been in other rivers in the Edwards Plateau that are similar, but uh, the Devil's is the most pristine river we have. Yep. And yep. What fish? What fish are you in, interested in there? Oh man, there is such a variety. Um, there are a few really interesting darter species in there. There are uh, a couple types of pupfish, I think, as well, which are a really neat group that we don't have at all in Appalachia. Um, man, I had this whole list memorized at one point. I think there's a type of live bearer too, which we also don't really have in Appalachia, aside from mosquito fish. Um, but just a really neat assemblage in the middle of the desert. Not, you know, not quite desert, but um, it's, it's, really it's... neat combinations. It's pretty arid out there, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. I would just I would love to see a darter in the desert period. In that the, would be yeah, in the limestone like area. Yeah. yeah, no. Make that and, trip. And, and that water. Yeah. If you um, make that trip, let me know. I'll uh we can oh, we'll, arrange it. We'll uh, we'll and there's do. other other rivers on the way that you'd want to see, like the San Marcos River and the Yes, that's on, on the list as well. Yeah. yeah. San Marcos is crazy. Like I, I wish I would have went to Texas State. To, to get my degree just because it the the river runs right through campus and it's like the most beautiful yeah. the water's so cold i guess yeah but that's one thing you haven't mentioned here is you have to have some yes it, it's it's chilly it, um, <laughs> i, I like wear a i wear a five millimeter wetsuit okay, and wetsuit socks and a hood usually right. um, in summer it's not too bad but if i want to go out in, in early spring when the darters are starting to spawn it gets real cold real fast you have to you have to just kind of just go get through it and you'll get used to it after a while i mean the wetsuit wetsuits are effective wetsuits do work okay i'm never five millimeter neoprene um you know it's cool you got to take the plunge but i can stay in for you know four or five hours um in, in good weather and if it's you know even if it's really cold um in early spring with the wetsuit i can stay in for an hour or two yep. and not get overly chilled i've never gotten really you know super chilled with a wetsuit on I've been in the I've been in Eglin Air Force Base, uh, down oh, yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the panhandle of Panhandle of Florida snorkeling for alligator snappers, and there were some cool darters there. And I can only well, stay a, thirty minutes. There's an endemic darter there. It's is a there, darter found nowhere else except what's for that called? Air Force I, I haven't seen it. Is it the one? It looks. It's um, the one Oklahoma I saw. It is, it's adapted to the sand. It looks. It's the exact color of the the white sand on the bottom of, of those streams. But I can if only stay. I'm not thinking of a different Air Force base, but Okaloosa Darter, I believe, is restricted to an Air I Force you. base. I would, I would, I would not be surprised if those streams at Eglin in the Panhandle of Florida were had endemics, had an endemic yeah. darter because they're they're pretty unique and um, isolated. But yeah. uh, yeah. thinking, thinking of cold water, that like in south in uh, the Panhandle of Florida, southwest or west Florida, I could barely stay in there for like thirty minutes because it was so cold. It's spring fed. Oh yeah, no. It's, that's an area you should check out. It's really 
these these river these streams cut through the longleaf pine savannah and there's amazing herbs yeah. you know, in the uplands and then in the streams there's alligator snappers and some really interesting uh sunfish species there's like a weird yeah. rock bass down there and a lot of a lot of darters they were they were larger and they matched the white sand perfectly i, I don't i don't know what, I can't remember what they were yeah no it's Another everywhere eat. everywhere with clear water has its own and especially neater streams and habitats that aren't typically clear but these streams for whatever reason are clear so like florida springs are crazy for that reason because you have all these species that are you know adapted to the swampy water and, and whatnot but they've also are in these in these springs and it's i'm obsessed clear. with florida florida yeah is, yeah yeah no it's i could live anywhere it'd be florida and also if i lived in florida it'd be like just a few hours north you can get to the the really cool fish and salamander diversity yeah but uh, um, man, do you have any yeah. ending ending thoughts here before we? Yeah, no, I was just just about to say. I think my roommate is about back from class. Um, I don't know, man. I've said all the all the big things I like yeah, yeah. to to get out there. You know, I advice for people. Uh, yeah, a... Any any closing advice for people that want to get into fish and conservation and for all of it. Again, it, it doesn't take a degree. It doesn't take anything more than than noticing. Just yeah. you know, you start to learn to train your eyes, and it's all it's all within reach. And especially if there's a stream um, behind your house, in your neighborhood, in your town, even if it's an urban area, even if it's you know muddy and you don't know what's in there, like there's something in there. Yeah. There is something in there that is absolutely fascinating uh, that 99.9% of people will walk right past for the rest of their life and never know about. Um, and that's just that's just kind of how I feel. If I'm on a road trip, I pay a lot less attention to state boundaries and way more attention to what river I'm crossing. Awesome. Um, you know, it's it's a whole other world. And for all the and I think a lot of your listeners are probably pretty outdoorsy people already, yeah. but it's I hope a not. whole I hope other world some, to explore. I hope there's it's some some, whole, some people yeah. that are trying to find it, you know. But uh anyway, thanks oh, so much. Absolutely. And you can hang around. I'm gonna I'm gonna end the recording. But uh thank you so much for coming on. That was great. Yeah.